Welcome to the Free Lawyer Podcast. I'm your host, Gary Miles. The Free Lawyer Podcast is designed for the lawyer, entrepreneur, or professional who is in some way unfulfilled, stressed, or stuck, and is looking for something better. We will discuss various blocks that limit us from achieving the personal freedom that we all desire, but have not yet fully experienced. And we will give actionable steps to free yourself from them. Are you looking to achieve a new level of success? If so, this podcast is for you. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us here today. And I'm, I'm truly excited to have with us today, Eric Fong. Eric is an incredible trial attorney um, who, who's obtained just some amazing results. But beyond that, he's a really incredible person who comes from a place of empathy and compassion, which for many of us lawyers is not easy. And I really look forward to hearing what Eric has to say today. So Eric, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. You're welcome. So Eric, tell me a little bit about your professional journey, um, kind of in a Reader's Digest version, and and where you are today and what you're doing. Uh, you know, we we ask so many questions and like, like, how are you doing today? And the knee-jerk response, oh, I'm great, I'm fine. Yep. And it's really hard to give an honest answer to deep questions. I don't think there's a deeper question than how are you doing? Right. And I'm saying this, of course, because your question about tell me about your career and and how did you get how how did it start and how are you now is that's a complicated question, Gary. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, but I was lucky. I grew up in a family that education was stressed. So I'm not the guy who was the first person to graduate from college who I, I so admire, you know, those 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 people. When when I hear that, I just instantly um, tingle. I came from a, you know, my dad was a college professor, my mom, um, both highly educated people and education was stressed almost too much. So when I graduated from high school, it was, I didn't go to graduation because I knew I'd graduate from college and I went to college. I didn't go to graduation because I knew I'd have a postgraduate degree. So I went to law school because I had to keep going to school in my upbringing with my family, it wasn't an option. Even as much as I tried to rebel, I generally stayed within the, the lanes of you know family structure. So I went to law school and I didn't want to be a lawyer. Had no intentions of it. So you and, just went to law school because you felt an obligation to continue your education and that was the one you picked. Yeah, it was, I majored in sociology. What else are you going to do? Right. And so um, I, I, today, I wouldn't even get into law school. I, I wouldn't have had the, the grades or the LSATs to get in. And when I graduated, I got a D in law school in what I do now, which is torts. <laughs> um, so I didn't take school all that seriously. And, and I got a job. as So I fell into the law. I got a job as a public defender and I've always kind of had a, 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 a part of my heart that has tremendous sympathy and empathy for people who s- struggle or have had less than me or, you know, didn't like I was I was raised to go to school. A lot of people are raised 
to do drugs, beat each other up, and lie and cheat. And yet, despite your somewhat, and maybe it's in the right word, privileged background, you, you grew up with such an empathy for those who were less fortunate. Yeah, I did. And I don't know where that comes from. Maybe my mom. Well, my, uh, my compliments to you for that, because sometimes it's harder to feel that when you don't, when that wasn't your life experience. It is. It is. That's true. And and I just, I fell in love with that job, Gary. I I was in court nonstop and I, and I was just, it wasn't work. And I was, I was juggling. This was before there were limits on public defense cases. And I was a federal, I was on the federal CJA panel. I was doing state murders. I was doing three city public. I mean, I had hundreds of cases at, at once going because my, my, I was in a private, was an associate in a private firm that had all these public defense contracts. And um, I learned how to talk to juries and judges and negotiate. And um, so I, I was good in court and it, it kind of stuck out. And because of that, I received some recognition from the legal community and it just kind of went from there. You know, I, I, it was a real gift that you were able to get into court so much. I did a lot of insurance defense work in my early career. So we would have been on the opposite sides of the fence. But the gift of that is I got into court a lot too. And it's really, really hard for a lot of attorneys to get those chances to be in court, which is the only way we develop our skills. You can't try a case once every 10 years and know how to do it well. You can't because then you would be 100 years old. That's I think <laughs> I think that the learning curve to get comfortable in court is somewhere between five and 10 trials of just getting the kind of basic, you know, your honor, may I approach the witness, um, you know, where you can do that you know, with, with spontaneity and creativity, as opposed to, oh my God, what do I do now? Right. And yeah. I would say, you know, I get asked this question all the time. How do I get into court? And I think short of what you, what you just talked about being, um, doing insurance defense or a prosecutor or, or a public defender, short of kind of those areas, you have to just pick a case Talk to your client about it and just say, we just need to try this case because some things are more important than money. And it could be a small case. It could be your biggest case, but you make a commitment and you got to start somewhere and you just have to do it because it's the constitution. It's a constitutional right to have these matters decided. And, and until we as a community, as lawyers are really holding the institutions, which we now have a massive hollowing out of, there's a there's a vacuum of authority from the government, from corporations, just based on their behavior. So we're not going to effectuate change at that level. We need a, a container of 12 people, six people, whatever your jury size is, and a skilled advocate to go into court and, and promote positive meaningful change. Right. Well said. Well said. And, and sadly, I've seen a lot of lawyers, what it's probably normal, feel a lot of fear, like they're very hesitant. To mm -hmm. They're happy when the case sells. They want the case to sell because they're afraid to go into court. And and you were you were blessed with that experience. And I was too. But I know a lot of people come from that place of fear, which is a real limitation in our ability to be trial lawyers, because that's the ultimate leverage is uh, no thanks. We'll see you in court, you know. 
Well, fear is a big fear is a big thing, and it's learning to confront it and replace it, or or be okay with the failure, right? Fear. The other side of the, the fear is the is there's a failure in it, and it's really it, the the stakes are so high. Our pride and ego are probably the number one limiters in in going forward in this stuff. But getting comfortable with fear and pushing the limits of what we are comfortable with and then reestablishing the zone of comfort is what we should all be striving to do to, to fulfill our destiny and fate and live a full life. But if you're always living below the level of your fear, you're never going to move beyond it. Well, if, we, if we're always comfortable, we're never growing. You know, I talk exactly. about how real growth comes from being uncomfortable, from stepping out that of that safety zone and failure for some people is such a big thing. And and I found I I was a much better trial lawyer when I stopped worrying about the results at all. And I just did my thing. I, I was good at it. I liked doing it. It was fun. I got in into it. But if I worried about what does it mean if I lose, that really limited my ability to be real and genuine. Uh, th there's a lot in that statement, a lot, which is personal work. I'd say spiritual work of letting go of your value attached to some accomplishment. And then the having the discipline every day to be the best you so that no matter what happens tomorrow, you can live with the outcome, good or bad. If you just do what you're supposed to do today, whatever happens down the road, we're powerless over it. A concept that we talked about a little bit before. Right. Very true. I know you you talked about being a public defender and now you do torts. You you moved into the area of being a plaintiff's tort attorney and you've had some really good successes, haven't you? I I have, you know, and I've actually always done, you know, my earlier career. What I didn't talk about was I had a large bankruptcy practice. I had a large divorce practice. I ha always have done personal injury cases. I I have, I truly have not been limited in the lack of knowledge for better or for worse. I, I had this mentality that if I just want to do something, I'll be able to learn the subject matter materials and I'll just do it. So there was this insane borderline irresponsible confidence that didn't prevent me from trying new things. And, and the flip side is to this day, I still do criminal cases. I still do weird odds and ends things. It's just, I'm in a luxury of, you know, I can choose to do something or not. But yes, most of my time is are spent on um, civil cases. And you, I, I know you have one particularly notable, huge verdict. Didn't you tell, tell us about that? Sure. It was a convenience store robbery you know the other thing about journeys is just opportunities and making the most of them and i like to hire interns you know law students mentoring is a big deal and i think that we should both seek it out and we should offer it and you're you're a good example of that is the preparation you did just for this podcast and i've done a ton of these is beyond what most people do because you're mentoring the people that want to listen and you're putting a lot of thought into these conversations that we're having now. And so I had a law student and she 
had a brother-in-law who walked into a convenience store as a customer and there was a robbery going on and he suffered a severe brain injury as a result of the robber attacking him with a baseball bat. Mm. This is a case that maybe 50, 50 lawyers would take because, right. you know, it's like it's causation it, to the extent of why is the corporation responsible for this? The person who did the intentional act is judgment proof. And then you're going to be apportioning some kind of amount of damages or you got to deal with that whole headache. Right. Of, right. What, right. How do you. How the do you store didn't hurt him. The, the robber did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's a very it's it's not something that. I think a lot of lawyers would want to do. Um, but I did. And I had read Randy McGinn's book, who's a legendary um, lawyer. She's out of Arizona, maybe. And she wrote a book, Change, Changing Law, Saving Lives, or something to that effect. And it was an extraordinary case that she did on a convenience store um, robbery or crime that happened there. And at the end of the day, right, negligence is duty breach causation. And convenience stores get robbed at midnight. These companies know it. And what I found in the journey was that I didn't know who owned this convenience store. It was this massive, complicated corporate firewall of I don't even know how many companies. And I was able to tell the story of corporate greed at the expense of hum humans. And there it was a case that had everything going on at once in the sense that there was a bad actor, like a really like villain was the, the conduct of this company was, and I hope they learned and I trust they have, you know, I believe that um, everybody does, nobody wants this to happen to anyone. Yeah. And so I was able to show that they knew they were going to get robbed and that they knew by not taking preventative measures, which, by the way, are required by both federal and state law. Can be, any store open 24 hours a day has a duty to prevent what happened. Wow. And because it's so predictable and it's so preventable. Um, and so I think they offered we. We we were destroying them in discovery and third, uh, corporate representative depositions and the preparation of work. We could have another whole day conversation on on that and what it takes to really work up a case. But I knew that we were now going to win this case because of the conduct that I was I was bringing up and their lack of knowledge on what they should know as a matter of law. They offered twenty five thousand dollars. My demand was 7.9 million. And at this point, I remember my partner and I, Ken McEwen, who was integral in this case, he's the guy that can sit down and stare at black letter law for two days straight and then write me a 10 page memo. I'm the guy that can't even read the 10 page memo, but I can sit back and look and see big picture stuff. So together, he and I, you know, we thought long and hard about a good demand. We we kind of settled in around five. If they offered five, we'd take it. They offered $25,000. Like who, who was assessing the risk in this case? And so there's all sorts of behind the scenes litigation happening now because the verdict was $91 million. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. I guess punitive damages came up oh, with that one. That all compensatory. 
Wow. It should have been it should have been punitive damages. And the trial judge off the record said she made a mistake by not allowing punitive damages. It, it was absolutely punitive damages. It was so reckless. These these big chains are are they this is how I describe it. It might be a little inflammatory. I apologize to the convenience store owners of the world. I believe they launder money by selling gasoline, cigarettes, and alcohol. I mean, we're talking wicked business. They own the trucks that deliver the fuel. They own the land. They sublease the rights to sell the stuff. They own the distributors. And you follow the money up and you get to the largest corporations of the world. But before you get to that, you have to pass through the largest hedge fund you know, uh, 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 investing companies in the world. We're talking $50 billion investment companies to get to trillion dollar corporations. Well, you know, I, th I think that really is an amazing story of creativity and, and courage because you're right. A lot of lawyers wouldn't take that case and a lot of lawyers wouldn't have prepared it the way you did. And some lawyers would have thought that's a hundred thousand dollar case because I'm, I'm likely to lose. And and you and your partner had such confidence in the result. And um, the result was pretty, pretty phenomenal. So congratulations on that. What for those lawyers who are out there who do trial work, what do you think are the keys to being a really good trial attorney and 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 getting for your client what they're entitled to and deserve? Um I think it's a strange combination of logic and emotion. And I talked about Ken a little bit and he has a really strong logic side and I have a really strong emotion side, but I also, I think that we're, I've, I've got a developed logic side as well. My dad was a chemistry professor. My brother is a biomedical engineer, PhD in biomedical engineering. My sister's a professor in economics. So I've got kind of like a overall general, competency in a lot of different areas and the law is so logical but decisions are so emotional and if and if you're using logic to take the steps to accomplish a result you'll lose every time because somewhere in there emotion is going to strike through those stairs and blow them up and it's going to be a gut decision and and I think that trial law has to recognize all of these things and be able to communicate to jurors or a judge at an at a at a heartfelt emotional level. And and that requires a lot of trust. That requires a lot of um, I think confidence. You have to be confident in trial. You have to know what you're saying is righteous and believe in it every step of the way. There can be no doubt, either in your preparation or the cause. And so that in that moment, when it doesn't go the way you expect, which is every other hour, every hour, every minute in court, you you roll with it and you spin like a top because it it you know, there's a spontaneity, there's a spontaneity and a creativity in the moment that's coming out of you that is organic and true. Well said. You know, it's I, I think you're really right about the emotion that goes into to trials and the results in Maryland, where I practice primarily. There's been a trend recently in plaintiff's personal injury cases to not put in the medical bills, which is mm -hmm. 
illogical. Um, they have $12,000 in medical bills. Why wouldn't you put them in? You're entitled to recover that. Yeah. And the rationale is that gives the jury a logical base for coming up with a number like $48,000. And you take that away and then they decided on a motion. This party was drinking and it was four in the morning and they should have driven more safely, whatever. And the verdicts can be outsized because they don't have that logical limitation on their verdict. So I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I know I've seen the most dangerous cases are the ones where there isn't really a number to tie them to, where it's um, a defamation case or an invasion of privacy case where it's unclear what the damages are, except they're very real and very powerful. So I, I think that's a really good point. Listen to this. And that case I just talked about, I had special damages of, you know, roughly $15 million. Wow. I didn't ask for them. That's the extreme of what you were just talking about. That is the extreme. Now, now but here's why. My client was 35 years old. Now, he was a really good person, kind, loving, super smart, super, not a drug, alcohol, none of that stuff, although that's how they tried to portray him. And he was African-American. And, um, you know, they 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 preyed on a lot of um, stereotypes, hoping that it would trigger something in people. Um, Backfired. Having, yeah, it was it was it was despicable, which is the other part of every great verdict, I think, is conduct by a defense lawyer. Yes. I, I, I'd like to take full credit for the brilliance of what happened, but I have to give credit where credit is due. And. So he was a young man who was going to make at least minimum wage or he had an opportunity to do far greater things. But his I could have presented a book of a, a lost wage claim of millions of dollars. His life care plan, I think on the high end could have was, you know, if he had everyday individualized care, somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 million. So why wouldn't you put in those really extensive? Um... Yeah. Well, I presented, I presented a life care expert, but in closing, I never asked for it. Because that's a number where, you, you know, you start talking about anchoring, right? To, to what you're saying about the logic. And do you ask for you know, if you have a chronic neck pain on a soft tissue case and you're talking about, look, we can't see this injury. And they tried physical therapy, massage therapy, chiropractic. They do home exercise. They've never been hurt before. They're 50, 60 year old, you know, man, woman, whatever. But now they have a sore neck flares up. That's a million dollar case. And why would you present evidence, you, you know what I mean, of $12,000 of a year, a year and a half of trying to get better? To me, that's illogical. Right. Right. Well said. Well said. Um, I know you believe big in compassion and empathy in the way you practice law. And the one thing I've seen is too many lawyers struggle with being compassionate, maybe because we're logical and we're confident and we're in charge. Tell me about empathy and compassion and why you think they're critical to make us be our best lawyer. Well, the way I, the, the, the entry into this was, well, go spend the night with your client and then you can empathize with them. That's not what it's about. That's not the definition of empathy. Yes, you will certainly, like, you know, if you have a, a, a blown shoulder case, 
you know, ruptures, tendons, rotator, whatever, and you've done that yourself, you're in a much better situation to articulate what it's like to not be able to raise your elbow or your shoulder. That's not empathy and, and compassion. Empathy and compassion starts inside of you and caring about yourself, understanding why you're feeling a certain way so that you can understand others, right? When you're in an airplane and they're talking about what to do when the cabin pressure drops and you have to breathe, you take care of yourself first because if you don't, you're going to die. And if you die, you're not going to be able to take care of your kid. So empathy and, and compassion for ourselves allows us to care for others. And it allows us to understand when you're looking into the eyes of a juror, what's going on in that moment, because it's a shared experience. A jury trial, a jurors are making a decision based on an experience that everybody has gone through. Everyone in the room experienced the exact same thing. The problem is everybody interprets it differently. Am I getting too far out there? Oh, no, not at all. Okay. Well, what I wanted to say about compassion that, that I thought was so important, I often think of compassion as me being um, considerate of the other person and their feelings and how to help find a solution. But the thought that it begins inside to me is really important because I'm much better being compassionate with you when you have trouble instead of me when I mess up. I beat myself up terribly. And I think it's very important that we remember that we have to extend grace to ourselves as we would to others. Because sometimes we are hardest on ourselves. I'll do something stupid. And I'll start yelling at myself. <laughs> My will say it's no big deal, you know? And, and, and then that can spiral. That can spiral into a whole lot of different crazy thoughts of bitter, resentment, anger, woe is me, right? And you start to become moody, right? Instead of moving, we have to, you know, thoughts change at, like in milliseconds, if you just stick with a bad thing and let it move through you and have compassion for yourself and just kind of be able to have resilience, it allows you to be a better person for others. And, and I think that, so empathy and compassion, when, when there's, when, when, first of all, it's missing in the world. So it's not about being a good lawyer. It's about being a good person because it does not exist. We've lost the ability to care for each other. And I, and there's nothing that makes me, you know, I mean, I, I'm kind of welling up right now when I think of how distant and cold we are towards each other because it's really bad. But when you can put that out there, that you are compassionate, that you do have empathy, it's this, it's this beacon of hope that we're craving. The irony is while we don't have it and we're not giving it, we crave it. Right. So when you're around people that bring it out, you feel it and it's attractive and it's persuasive. It's, it's a good leader. It's a good, it's a, it, you're a good person. Right. Right. Well said. Well said. What do you, th and, and I kind of think about what you said about defense lawyers too. My biggest result was when the defense attorney, it was a defamation case was just so nasty. He's <laughs> so yeah. stupidly aggressive and I got more money than I asked for. And I was mentored by one of the best defense attorneys in Maryland, and he was the most compassionate, empathetic, kind man ever. 
because he's always representing someone who had, you know, arguably done something wrong and hurt someone. So he can only come from, and it really was as effective as it could be under the circumstances, yeah. you know. What do you think are the biggest problems or problem facing lawyers today and how should they manage that? I think the biggest, anytime I have a quick answer, I'm always, always wrong. I think the <laughs> biggest problem facing lawyers today is, is an ego, is, a, is an internal thought. And ego doesn't mean I'm, a, I'm inflated and great. It could also be I'm failing and I'm no good. Um, I think that the biggest problem that lawyers face, again, is what humans are facing, which is we have grown up in an environment that has projected images and ideas of what it means to be successful and beautiful and, you know, the life of the party. And all of these ideas have been created by non-living you know we're talking about art artificial intelligence now right we're, we are on the threshold of some really like out there stuff go to phoenix today and and, and ask how it is to live in, in in this beautiful place but all of these kind of this has been a slow moving train wreck that i think a lot of people have seen coming for decades and we have been sold a bill of goods by a non-living, breathing corporate conglomerate that needs to make money that is that, that that has come out of ourselves from our individuals of success and trying to impress other people and trying to buy influence and trying to buy favor, trying to buy love instead of the inward journey of just being kind and compassionate to myself that what I have is good enough. And if I can plant my feet right now on this dirt and be grateful for what I see, regardless of the size of my house and the, the year of my car and the, and the zeros behind my bank account, but instead I'm, I'm grateful for what I have and I believe in what I'm doing and I feel like I'm doing good in this earth, right? That, that mentality doesn't really get you very far. You'll become trounced upon in the machine of society. And so it's coming to peace with, which by the way, what we all want is what I first described. Every human being would love to just be satisfied with the simple things, right? The trinkets and the constant accomplishments, there's never enough. You can never get to the end. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's taken me a long time. You're a lot younger than I am, but I've learned that the stuff never makes me happy. And when I have the, that stuff, then I want more stuff, and then I want more stuff, and and it's some people have called it the achievement trap. You know, we become partner, and then well, that didn't do it. I, I want to be a partner at a bigger firm. I, I want something. It never ever fills the hole, and I think yeah, it really yeah. comes from being genuine and authentic and living our life to good purpose and finding fulfillment in the practice of law instead of financial rewards because the financial rewards are just a number. And when you get that number, we want a bigger number and it never works. It, and that's, that's it. It's fulfillment in the practice. That's what's preventing us that in that sentence, the quick answer to your question is we're not being fulfilled by the practice of law and you have to be. And what makes it harder are, you know, you work in, in even law firms, of course, right, are probably the leading examples of this malady and virus that we've been talking about culture, right? And so when you're in an environment that 
isn't fulfilling you because of these external demands and pressures that prevent you from growing into yourself and learning about how to be an artful lawyer and to practice your trade, that's not fulfilling. And I don't know how we change that culture. I don't know how you exist in that. I mean, I, I, I'm well, in- I think, I think the change has to come from inside. I think, you know, the lawyer who is feeling unfulfilled and feeling frustrated needs to step back and say, what do I want my life as a lawyer to be? Because so many people feel my, my thought is so many people feel stuck where they are because it was their job out of law school and it sounded good and they make good money. And then they realize it doesn't do it. And they should re-examine what their values are. And, and, and we, were, we, were, we were talking about risk earlier. And maybe now's the time to push your comfort level and take a risk that pushes you to an area to try something different. I mean, worst that can, you know, these are cliches, but the worst that could happen is you fail. And in that failure comes a new growth and a new perce- perception. Always, always. I never learn anything when when everything goes just right. We have the day when everything's perfect. Yeah, I don't learn anything when I go and play golf and every shot's perfect. I'm not becoming a better golfer. It's only when I do something wrong that I realize what I have to do better. So for the lawyer who's listening to us today, Eric, and you and I come from the same place, we share a lot of values. But that lawyer who's sitting at his desk, who's unhappy, who can't stand what he's doing, who's frustrated. What suggestions do you have for him or her? Um. You know, I think this will be the third time I've talked about the inward journey is is every every living creature. And I, I fish. And what I hate about fishing is that I know that I'm killing a fish. But every human has this star inside of them that's burning to do great things and to live. And, 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 and I don't care who you are. I don't care where you live or what you're doing or what you have. And in, 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 in when, when that's not growing and we're not feeding that is when you get to what we're talking about, this frustration level. And so the suggestion that I would have is to, is to take some time and meditate or, or really ask, go out on a, go on a, on a soul searching walk, even if it's just two hours of what do I want to do with myself? Who am I? What's wrong? And ask yourself this question, what am I not willing to talk about with other people? What is What am I afraid to talk about? That will be the source of your greatest growth so that you can be freed of that and you can now talk about it with others. Well said, well said. Well, you and I both share a lot of things, but we both know our secrets or what can be, you know, what can be dangerous for us. I think that's really well said. You know, Eric, I call this podcast The Free Lawyer because to me, it's all about how you, I, we can support lawyers in becoming truly free and no longer stuck in a a prison they're not happy with. What does true personal freedom mean to you, Eric? Hmm. Well... I just got back from Philadelphia where the constitution, um, you you know, where the signatures took place. And at that time it, you know, they talked about injustice and liberty for all, but it wasn't for all. And so we can have these great aspirational ideas, but sometimes it's not realistic. Sometimes it's not possible 
And I think that personal freedom, when you are constantly paying a credit card interest bill to try and exist, you're never going to be personally free. You're in debt to the corporate conglomerate. And so I think fiscal responsibility is really, I drive a beater car. If I made three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 a month, I could pay my overhead. And I, I'll tell you right now that I probably have more money than a lot of folks, but I want to, I, I want to stay within an area that I'm never beyond any, I hope I never ever get to the point where a thousand dollars is a ton of money to me. You know, like I, 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 I hope I never reach that point. But I think you have to be fiscally responsible, number one, to gain any kind of personal freedom. Because as long as you're wondering how you're going to pay the interest on your debt, you will never be anything close to personally free. That's true. Now, you, you, anyways. Well, I agree with that. I think some of us, we can live beyond our means. And one thing I didn't experience having gone to law school a long time ago is graduating with student loan debt, which can be very onerous and yeah. get us off to a bad start. So I think that's really uh, well said. Eric, I really appreciate everything you had to share today. For listeners who want to learn more about you or get in touch with you, how can they best um, get in touch with you? Um, my cell phone, um, 360-621-9557. Or you can go to my website and email me, ericfonglaw.com. Very good, Eric. Thank you so very much for joining us today. I really appreciate you and who you are and, and your passion for helping those who, who deserve to be helped. So thank you very much. Well, we share that. You're welcome. And thank you. Thank you. Uh, and to all our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. And as always, please be well, be safe, and be free. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Free Lawyer Podcast. Wherever you are listening, if you enjoyed what I shared, please leave me a rating and review. I would appreciate hearing more about what you like best and what topics you might like me to cover in future episodes. If you are interested in experiencing a more fulfilling and a more successful life, please contact me at www.garymiles.net where you can schedule a free discovery call with me so I can learn more about you, your challenges, and your dreams. I appreciate each and every one of you and have a great rest of your day. Thanks to all of you for your support.